This is the Blunt Doctor Show. On a Monday afternoon, and I continue to keep pushing into the afternoon segments. Seems like I'm uh, settling in somewhere between like uh, obviously post morning show, but still like pre drive time. So you could theoretically listen to this in drive time since it's a podcast. It would be available for you because I'm recording in the midday. So that makes me a drive time host, which means I'm in the segment of radio which gets the highest ratings, which means I'm a superstar. So thank you for helping me get here over all this week. As I am obviously being dumb, we are here yet again to talk NBA. And actually, I've mostly only talked NBA thus far, but we've got a lot of NFL things I want to cover. I've got a whole... When I started playing this show, I actually had one film I wanted to talk about. And I had that, you know, at the back end. Um, and then as I compiled all the topics in terms of sports that I wanted to talk about, um, I suddenly realized not this episode. Maybe tomorrow. We'll see. But for now, we're simply going to cover a whole lot of weekend sports events. I had a hell of a good time gambling this weekend. I um, hit a lot of interesting parlays, some three-way parlays. I really killed it on Korean basketball this weekend, actually. Um, interestingly enough, I thoroughly enjoy worldwide basketball because, like, I just love basketball. And when it's Saturday night and it's midnight and you're not done gambling for the day and you want to continue, well, really the only place to go is, you know, somewhere else around the world. And so, you know, that's how I have ended up gambling on a lot of these foreign leagues. But I'll be honest with you, it's fun. It's awesome. And again, I you know did a pretty good job this weekend. Didn't do so poorly on the NFL yesterday either. We'll go over my... I made uh, 16 picks. I didn't pick every game. I didn't pick the Thursday game. Um, I picked every spread, but I didn't pick every over-under. I picked a couple over-under. Anyway, it worked out to 16 picks yesterday. And uh, pretty good day. In any case, one thing I wanted to talk about real quickly. I don't think people realize how good Devin Booker is. Because... For everything that has gone on in his career, for all the losing, I don't think people understand how much of that stuff is actually based in the fact that Devin Booker was literally playing with so many guys who were, like, not even now in the NBA. Um, You know, like, almost all of the, you know, lottery picks around him are either out of the league or, you know, I mean, I mean, okay, I think the top picks, Bender is not in the league that I know of, but... You know, Marquise Chris plays for the Warriors and Alex Len plays for the Raptors. They're in the league. But, you know, some of the other guys that he was expected to play minutes with are ridiculous. And, you know, it really affects everything about his career. You know, the wins. It affects his defensive statistics, especially on an advanced level. Because, like, if you look at advanced, you know, statistics, everyone tries to paint Devin Booker as always having been a horrible defender. But... And it's very true that 
in the beginning of his career, he was not a good defender, and especially given the people around him, you know, there were many times where he simply didn't try. But if you actually watch the man play defense, especially now on teams where the games matter, you'll see that those things are not true. And the reason that I bring all this up is if I asked people at face value who is a better player, Paul George or Devin Booker, I think most people's instinct would be to say Paul George, and I just don't think that's the correct answer. Now, for their career, just real quick, I'll throw some numbers. So this is for their career thus far. We'll go with Paul George first. 20 points, 3.6 assists. These are per-game numbers, not per-36 numbers, so just per game. Uh, Booker, excuse me, Paul George, 20 points a game, 3.6 assists, 6.4 rebounds, 43% shooting, 38.1%. Uh, from three, and a true shooting percentage of 565. The reason I'm going with per-game numbers instead of per-36 numbers is because sometimes, you know, early in a guy's career, they can, you know, especially with Booker, who didn't play as many minutes, some of his per-36 numbers sort of look outrageous, especially with how good he was shooting early in his career. And so just given that these guys who become franchise centerpieces in various ways, I'm just looking at the raw numbers. So... From a raw perspective, that's what Paul George has done for his career. 20 points, 3.6 assists, 6.4 rebounds, 43% from the field, 38% from three, and a true shooting percentage of 565. Booker, 22.5 points per game, 4.7 assists per game, so more points, more assists, 3.6 rebounds, almost three fewer rebounds, but especially the fact that Booker is more of a guard, George is more of a wing, it's sort of a negligible thing. Booker's got a better shooting percentage, 44.8. Paul, Paul George does have him beat on threes, 35.4% for Booker from his career, but a true shooting percentage of 568. Booker, also one of the best free throw shooters in the league at this point. Um, you know, he routinely shoots, you know, in the 90% from three. Um, and obviously, Paul George has been a better player. There's, there's no question about that. Like, I'm not trying to argue those things at all. For his career, the defense puts him in a scenario where he's done more. He's been in the Eastern Conference Finals where he played, you know, toe-to-toe with LeBron in 2013. So, overall, I understand that given what Paul George has done, there's no way to say that Devin Booker has been better than him. I am getting that. But if you were looking for a player for the next five seasons... I, I'm taking Devin Booker and I don't know. Book is just, he's a better offensive player. He is a more clutch player. Honestly, I know that he hasn't had the playoff opportunities to prove it, but you know, Paul George shoots, shooting shots off the backboard, you know, at the end of games, Dev, you know, book has hit more game winners, uh, Paul George is absolutely atrocious in the playoffs, and I'm going to guarantee you that Book won't be that. I mean, I know that they weren't playoffs, but look at how he played in the bubble. Eight games where the Suns absolutely had to win every game to have a shot at the playoffs, and they won every single one, and Booker was scoring, you know, 35 a game. So, in the clutch, the moments that have mattered, I mean, we've all seen Paul, I mean, Paul George, you know, we all talk about Dame Lillard hitting the triple from deep. Paul George is the one who took that one. You know, he was standing there. 
So for all that supposed, you know, incredible defender, right in his face, a series-ending triple. Incredible shot, sure. But I really think, especially when you look at just, like, you know, player rankings and, you know, how people are rating teams in the West, Devin Booker is going to be better than Paul George. And when their careers are over, he's going to have had a better career. I don't think that the Clippers are out of contention, but Paul George would have to rise to a level that he hasn't seen in basically seven years in order for the Clippers to win a title right now. In in order to get past the Lakers, he would have to get to that level. So, is it possible? Maybe. You know, again, we haven't seen it in seven years. And for the nerds here, I'm going to do this. I'm going to right now, let's pull up the stats for the per 36. And let's see. Per 36 minutes, Booker's points go up, truthfully. Let's have a look at Paul George per 36 minutes. So, Booker gets another couple point bump. Like I said, some of his early career per 36 numbers are so ridiculously good. I'm just throwing this in here right now, just in case anyone wants to sit here and throw that at me. Paul George gets a 1.5 point bump. So he adds... Let's see. Paul George, his rebounds go up to 6.9. His assists stay right at 3.6. He gets a 1.5 point bump. Booker gets a uh, about a 1.5 point bump as well, truthfully. So, okay, right there. The the per 36 minute numbers truly just, I mean, they basically just match their starting numbers. So with both guys kind of coming off their bench earlier in their career, Paul George was not as much of an offensive player. Booker was really just a shooter to start his career. Some of those numbers, you know, you could conceive of them as wonky, but if you just look at the per 36, it really doesn't change. For the most part, it's there. But Booker is an 87% career free throw shooter. Paul George is an 84% career free throw shooter. He's good, but he's still slightly worse in every category. And so he's got him on defense. He's got a better career three-point pursuiting percentage. We'll give him that. Booker's got a better true shooting percentage. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think if you ask people, and Booker is also a better passer than Paul George, by the way. But I think if you ask people, you know, who's going to be better the next five years. I really feel that a lot of people would just sort of, Paul George. It's definitely Paul George. He's blah, blah, blah. And I don't think that people understand how good Devin Booker is. And I have to say that had he been like in a situation where he was in a winning organization right away, you know, I think we would have already seen playoff greatness from Devin Booker. So a lot of the losing and a lot of the, you know, some of the advanced numbers on like win shares and value over replacement players where he's playing with guys who are simply should not be in the league. That stuff rates him worse, but it doesn't factor in how bad the organization is. And as much as you try to factor in the other players on the court, you can't factor in an organization that literally doesn't take care of their players and literally has no player development system and bad coaching and guys who aren't even in the G League now, it's impossible for me to sit there and say, okay, that is definitely the, 
you know, th- those are fair circumstances to compare. You know, Paul George came into a good system in Indiana. He played on the playoffs in playoff teams early in his career because there were other great players around him. Booker, again, go if you go look, the guy's literally playing with guys who didn't even belong in the league. So suffice the suffice it to say with the nerdiness and arguing per 36 and per game numbers, essentially with myself, um, trying to provide that two-person side by giving it to myself for using per game numbers and then then arguing back with myself that the per 36 numbers are largely the same. In any case, when you take a look at these two guys and what they're going to do and the values of their contracts, I would wager anything that Devin Booker's max extension is going to be worth infinitely more than the contract that Paul George just signed. And I bet you that at the end of Devin Booker's next contract, his third contract, which is hopefully with the Phoenix Suns, but I will wager that regardless of where he plays that third contract, it's going to be worth more than all of Paul George's contracts at the end. I think that he is going to be a better player than Paul George ever was. That's what I think. The reason I kind of come across this is on Twitter this weekend, for whatever reason, there was a whole discussion about Tim Duncan versus Anthony Davis, which is dumb. Because Tim Duncan is obviously better than Anthony Davis. It's not a comparison. Obviously that people don't realize how good Tim Duncan is. That's, you know, that's clearly what's going on here. I mean, I'm just going to make it clear. I hate Tim Duncan, right? He broke the Suns' heart in the playoffs. I don't even know how many times. But that dude is the best power forward ever. He's better than KG. He's better than Dirk. He's better than Amari Stoudemire, obviously. You know, he's better than any guy that you can throw out there at power forward. If you want to try to give me an argument about like Larry Bird is really a power forward, not a small forward. I mean, I I guess there are, but it's only, only the best of the best of the best. One guy at power forward I might accept as an argument is better than Tim Duncan is LeBron. If, If you think LeBron is a power forward and not a small forward and that's how you view it, then that's fine. I don't necessarily feel that way, but, you know, especially in his first or really his second year in Miami, LeBron played a lot of power forward. So it's, he's, you know, he's played power forward, small forward, played point guard really for the Lakers last year. LeBron is in everything. LeBron is a LeBron, right? There's no, there's really not a comparison for LeBron. But when you just look at a power forward, a guy who gets buckets, a guy who plays incredible defense, who can stretch the floor a little bit, who plays inside, outside passes, does everything. Tim Duncan is simply the best one. And I know that the Spurs didn't really win multiple titles in a row, so it's like, oh, is it a dynasty? Blah, blah, blah. You know, they didn't like have three-peats, things like that. I understand those things. But the teams that they beat in the playoffs, in the finals, they had so many incredibly difficult finals runs. Um, And, you know, they played so many different Hall of Famers. And this is not to say that LeBron has not done the same. He has. Again, if you make this argument for LeBron, I'll take it. But the idea that Anthony Davis right now is anywhere near Tim Duncan is foolish. You look at Anthony Davis's career pre-Lakers, and he's not even a winning player. Now, coming to the Lakers, he went to a new level. I was curious if Anthony Davis was going to be able to take it to a new level going to the Lakers. And we obviously saw it in the playoffs. It definitely happened. There's no question about that. So, you know, I don't, you know, I, 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 I questioned it. He did it. But there's no way to say that Anthony Davis has done anything near Tim Duncan because Tim Duncan was in championship contention for basically his entire career. Anthony Davis could barely drag a team to the playoffs and really only did it when he had, um, 
you know, one really good team around him with, you know, Drew Holiday and Nikola Mirotic. Um, this is not to say that he should be able to drag a team to the playoffs by himself. New Orleans was also a lot like the Suns, just a weird, bad organization that had, well, the Suns have had great staff, but the Pelicans had terrible health staff. Um, the Suns have had great health staff, that is, bad other staff, coaching, etc. In any case, Tim Duncan, always in championship contention. Now, was he part of a great organization? Sure. And again, those things do matter. But there's simply never going to be a way that you can say that a guy who's won one championship is better than five. A guy who's won five. If Paul George had already won a title, then what I just said about Devin Booker would sound more foolish, to be honest. Because that would mean that Paul George had done it at the highest levels, not just had a hot playoff run, and there's a significant difference there. Tim Duncan did it at the highest levels right away, and Anthony Davis only did it at the highest levels when he played next to the only other guy who I might consider better than Tim Duncan at power forward. So, those things aside, Anthony Davis theoretically could end up better than Tim Duncan. If somehow the Lakers went on to win, you know, let's say they won four titles in a row, which hasn't really been done in the modern era. You know, the Lakers have, uh, you know, the Bulls had a couple of three-peats. The Lakers have, uh, I believe, multiple three-peats. The Celtics won eight in a row, but not in the modern era. In any case, if the Lakers won like four in a row, like if they win the next three titles, uh, and let's say that AD continues to take a share of offense and defense away from LeBron each season, you know, let's say, you know, his, his, his usage percentage goes up, he's passing more, you know, those are scenarios where he could theoretically be better. Um, even if they won three in a row, you could probably start to make that argument just because Tim Duncan never achieved anything like that. But Winning one title, you know, with LeBron right next to you, still clearly in his, I mean, I thought LeBron was maybe a little post-prime. I was wrong. <laughs> LeBron is still LeBron. He's still the best player in the league. So LeBron in his prime certainly makes it easier to win a title. And Tim Duncan, good players around him, Played with an end of his career, David Robinson. Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili are very good, but, you know, no LeBron. No LeBron on those teams. He was the LeBron on those teams. So, one day Anthony Davis could be better. I've seen people saying that there's no chance. There is a chance. Another thing I will say, Tim Duncan is better than Kobe Bryant. Like, I'm sorry, I, I'm not trying to be an asshole about that. I just, when you come to, now again, if you want to look at, if you go, okay, well, the championship repeats, well, sure. But Shaq was the driving force behind the first three Lakers titles with Kobe. I mean, Kobe was a very nice player. He was a great compliment to Shaq. Absolutely. But Shaq was unstoppable. Come playoff time. He played himself into shape, and then Jack was the man. And Kobe was a fantastic compliment to Jack. Kobe is an incredible all-time player. But in my opinion, Tim Duncan 
is a better all-time player. You look at the seasons when the Lakers were truly just Kobe, and they had to go get Pau Gasol to fix it. Now, Kobe was the driving force behind those two teams. So if you want to talk about the back-to-back, I understand those things. I'm not going to say, like, if you sit here and say, you're crazy, Kobe was better for this reason and this reason and this reason. I, okay. That's not enough. I'm not going to, like, die on that hill and argue about that one forever. Everyone should have their opinion. But I just think, again, I think if you ask Tim Duncan or Kobe, I think because of the Lakers being who they are, people would definitely say Kobe. And I think if you dig in and look at Tim Duncan's numbers and the impact he had over so many years and being the best player on many championship teams, save for the last one where Kawhi really started to take over. Um, it's tough for me, you know, and if you want to make the per 36 numbers, I mean, Tim Duncan's per 36 are just ridiculous. So, hey, we're all going to have different opinions, but as a hater of both Tim Duncan and Kobe Bryant, as a person in the middle who hates them both equally. So Lakers fans and Spurs fans, when I say how much I hate and all these, it's, it's truly out of respect. You have rings. I don't, well, I look up at you, right? But when I look at, you know, multiple guys with, you know, so many rings, five rings, I believe each. And I just think Tim Duncan was a little more impactful. Maybe you say Kobe had a higher peak. I can listen to these things. But this is the nature of basketball discussion. We'll always get to argue these things. But I, I think we need to get off of the the LeBron-Michael debate because it's arbitrary, really. You know, They never played each other. There's really no way for them to play each other. Kobe and Tim Duncan played each other. So let's look at those series. You know, let, Sure, they didn't play directly against each other positionally, but they played in series against each other. So let's look at those things. Let's debate other things. You know, here's a good debate. Dirk Nowitzki or Kevin Garnett? They're both guys with one title. They're both power forwards who, in different ways, changed the way that some people looked at the game. Dirk probably changed the game more than KG, but KG was, well, we all love KG. He was ferocious. So let's talk about Dirk and KG. That's a discussion that really would be interesting to have. And... It's not one that people want to talk about. We always want to talk about the absolute best guys, and we should. We, you know, we should always talk about the best guys. I understand that. But, you know, we're never going to settle the LeBron-Jordan debate. People are going to disagree. It is what it is. So let's just talk about some other greats. There are other great discussions to be had. It's not all of that. But at this point, Tim Duncan is better than Anthony Davis, and I think that probably is going to stay. Some other things, news-type things. Rudy Gobert signs a five-year, $200 million extension with the Jazz. So I picked Rudy Gobert for Defensive Player of the Year because I thought that he was going to be in a contract year. And so I thought, you know, Rudy in a contract year trying to guarantee that money. And then he got $200 million. Guys generally don't play so well after they get the big contract. But, you know, we're just going to see what happens. I'm not going to change my pick now. He got his money. Let's see if the $200 million man can get that, you know, get the DPOY back. We'll see. Kyle Kuzma signs a three-year, $40 million extension. I read the last year's a player option. You know what? Let me tell you something. That is a contract that can and will be traded. The Lakers have put together a couple of, you know, decent 
tradable assets at times and, you know, made deals we didn't necessarily see coming. Um, you know, they've, they've done better than we thought in this, you know, this front office run. Uh, you know, I didn't really think a lot of them coming in and obviously they've delivered LeBron James. They won a title. Um, how much they had to do with LeBron coming there, you know, it doesn't really matter, but you know, Rob Polinka got the deal done for Anthony Davis. Again, how much he had to do with it. You can argue that, but he put players around them and they won a title. That can't be argued. Um, and I think the thing about this Kyle Kuzma's extension is I think there was a lot of thought around the league because Lakers fans love Kyle Kuzma and they overrate the hell out of him. You know, and you see stupid, you know, Stephen A. Smith said at one point that the Lakers should trade Kyle Kuzma for Devin. But like, that's a stupid, stupid idea that would obviously never occur. Kyle Kuzma is not in book's world. It's D-Book is, you know, on another plane astrally from where Kyle Kuzma is. So that's just nonsense. But the idea that, you know, Kyle Kuzma would get a large extension or want a huge extension, you know, was, I think, a problem for many teams. I think that was sort of where, you know, you're looking at, Oh, well, we could potentially get this guy from the Lakers, but what kind of extension does he want? What does he think of himself? Well, this is a reasonable contract. Um, you know, we can argue over, you know, how good Kuzma is and, you know, what he is on a night to night basis, but it's hard to argue against the player in his mid twenties on, you know, an extension that's of that of a quality role player, you know, three years and 40 million. This is kind of like. I think roughly what Pat Beverly got from the Clippers, um, which, you know, Pat Beverly is more of a defensive player, but that's probably like a fair comp in terms of value, like a guy who can help you win some games, but in the playoffs may be limited here and there. Um, but it's less than 15 million a season. And so it's just not a horrible deal, really. I, I've been a Kuzma hater, really. Um, just because of how much Lakers fans tend to overrate him, as I have done with many Suns prospects. I think the guy, the guy that everyone loves, Laker Film Room, I think he hated me because I wouldn't automatically say that Dragon Bender was terrible, which I guess I should have immediately known, but hey, what are you going to do? Um, in any case, that's the Lakers fan base for you. They're assholes, but I'm a Suns asshole, so it works out. Kyle Kuzma, three years, 40 million tradable option, you know, player option last year. This is this is the kind of contract that the Lakers could use to acquire a veteran. Um, you know, say something, say it's not working and they need to acquire a third player on the deadline or next offseason, um, I believe when the contract kicks in, there are ways. You know, now he has more value as a guy on a cheap contract who has a reasonable extension kicking in. Next summer, the number goes up. You can use that higher in trade purposes. There's a lot of different it has value. So this is a good extension for the Lakers. As far as Rudy Gobert and the Jazz, it's going to be tough. Like, is Rudy Gobert going to be worth $40 million a season for the next five years, given what we don't know about the cap? It's one of those things where sometimes you're like, well, the cap's just going to keep going up in that number, even though it looks huge, it's not as bad because the percentage, blah, blah, blah. But what if the cap stays flat? You know, there, there are certain things. Um but if his contract is negotiated as a percentage, that may not end up mattering. 
is he worth near max money? You know, that's not the true max. You know, the super max is 35% and it's some, you know, it's 228 million or whatever Giannis got. Um, so there was more money available that he did not quite get. It was very close, but is he worth this? I mean, it's, it's tough to say. You know, this is the thing. I have always said how much I hate max contracts because max contracts, number one, they cap the value of the best players, as we all talk about, you know, LeBron is worth more than uh, James Harden, but James Harden, you know, makes more money because he stayed with one team for, you know, eight years in a row and was on his rookie contract when he got traded. So he never signed with anyone in free agency and, you know, blah, blah, et cetera. So because James Harden was traded on his rookie contract and his bird rights were maintained, he's essentially played as if he's had one team for his whole career. So he makes more money than LeBron who has gone and changed teams. But in a free market system, LeBron would make, you know, the majority of a team's cap. And you just have to find a way to, you know, fill in guys around him. And that's truly what the NBA would be. And as far as if we wanted parity, that's really what it should be is have a salary cap. And then just don't have a cap on what you can pay players. And then one team gives LeBron 75 million and, you know, it, it, they'll get their market value. Now, some of the middling guys will get squeezed out and they won't like it, but most of the contracts that you hate come from the max system because what happens is the max creates an artificial negotiating point because it takes guys who are on bad teams and Essentially, they're able to go to the owner and say, hey, I'm your best guy. I'm your max player. You have to give me a max contract. And every rookie deal, basically every second contract for a rookie who's good in the lottery or even not in the lottery, just if they're good, it's a max contract. Now, obviously, the second max is lower than the third max. You know, you're the, the NBA, you get paid more over time. So your second contract is going to be less than your third contract. But the max system artificially increases the negotiating point for middling players and decreases the earning value of the best players. So if we truly believe in a free market system for the NBA, which I as a socialist don't know, I'm not going to sit here and argue about an NBA socialism system because it would never happen. So if the NBA is a free market, LeBron should simply just get whatever he can get. Now, when you have baseball, which has no salary cap, but has an incredibly punitive luxury tax, even the teams with the you know most money don't necessarily always spend. So if you wanted to get rid of the salary cap because you hate that system together or altogether, I could rock with that as long as you know you're keeping that luxury tax punitive because we don't want to have you know, just billionaire hedge fund owners buying teams and then they can just buy championships. We hate that. That's boring. So there needs to be some way to create parity. The salary cap does that, but just remove the max contracts. LeBron and AD can't really play together if they're not willing to take massive pay cuts if there are no max contracts. If they both want $75 million and the salary cap is 115 well, then they can't play together. They have to play against each other. And that is the beauty of that system. It would create the parody that some of us long for. I truly would love to go back to, you know, sort of a 90s basketball where, you know, all the best kind of players kind of had their own team and it was about who could assemble the best pieces around the best players. 
And I understand that it wasn't always that way. There were super teams here and there, but I loved that era. Now, the other thing that would be interesting about it would be what teams could get guys to take pay cuts to play together. Now, you may think that always would occur on the coast, but nobody's taking a $50 million pay cut to build a, you know, a three player super team. That's not happening. So it would just be interesting to see how it would all go. I hate the max contract system. It creates artificially inflated negotiations for some players. How did I get here from Rudy Gobert? Who knows? But the point is, will Rudy Gobert be worth that? He's worth it if the Jazz win a championship. You're paying max money to Gobert. You're paying max money to to Donovan Mitchell. You got to win a ring, you know, for those to be really truly successful contracts. And you know, same thing. The Suns are probably going to pay Aiton near a max, and they're paying Booker a max, and they'll probably pay Booker, uh, you know, that third contract max if he will stay. It's an open question as to whether Devin Booker will stay. But if he does, they'll probably pay him the third max. And the only way that those contracts are worth it is if he delivers a ring. And I believe he will. But, you know, those are the questions that really, those are the way that we can define, I think, the max players. You know, in terms of is Devin Booker a good player? Yeah, the answer is obviously yes. In terms of is he one of the best players in the league or of all time, those those questions get answered with rings. You know, I think we can agree that it's not all about rings. There is a lot of nuance in, you know, organizations and all of those things. But when we get to discussing the greatest of the greatest, you know, how many rings you have is certainly a powerful argument in your favor when we get to those things. So we'll see how those things all shake out. The Bucks lose second round pick for tampering because of the whole Bogdan thing. You know, essentially they looked like they had a sign and trade agreement with Bogdan Bogdanovich. Then it turned out they didn't. And somehow they're penalized for, for, t- I, I, it's dumb. The whole thing is just dumb. NBA tampering rules are so fucking stupid. Tampering occurs all the fucking time in the NBA. Okay. Agents represent multiple players and they will just go to teams and be like, Hey, you know, by the way, blah, blah, etc. You know, I, you know, I know that we're here talking about this guy's contract extension, but by the way, here's another thing, hint, hint. And I know that some agents are really good at compartmentalizing and they focus on what they're talking about when they're talking about it. Brian Windhorst has always said that Rich Paul, Rich Paul would be able to argue with a team that he was, uh, you know, mad with about one player and then five minutes later talk about another player that he was happy about and it would be completely separated and completely fine. Sure. Those things definitely exist, but it doesn't mean that, um, there aren't scenarios where you might discuss another thing on the side or theoretically mention some ideas. Tampering happens constantly in the NBA. Players tamper with each other. We have no problem with that. I don't care. Let these guys discuss teaming up. It's their job. They can choose where they want to work, should they work together. I completely support all of those things. It's just the rules are stupid. Let them tamper. Who the hell cares? Like, you either need to let them tamper or you need to actually prevent tampering. Like, it has to be one or the other. Because LeBron clearly tampered to get Anthony Davis. They, like, basically orchestrated that whole thing. And, like, you know, they were, you know, Anthony Davis got, you know, fined for going public with this trade demand. But in the end, essentially what it boils down to 
is that LeBron James tampered the hell out of that situation, especially if he views himself as a GM, which, you know, we all think he does, and he basically runs the situation, then, I mean, then he tampered. But if we're not mad about him doing that, then why do we have these rules? And why are the Bucks in trouble? Why are the Bucks in trouble for trying to sign a restricted free agent, but LeBron James is not in trouble for acting as GM of the Lakers and forcing a trade for Anthony Davis or telling, you know, forcing Anthony Davis to say, hey, I'm not going to sign anywhere with the Lakers. Like, I don't care about any of it, but why is one worse than the other? Why are the Bucks in trouble and not the Lakers? Like, am I truly to believe that the Bucks, who are not the crown jewel of the NBA, are the ones who tampered, but the Lakers, who get away with everything and had Magic Johnson literally tamper on television, they're just perfect. This is absurd. It's absurd. It's absurd, man. It's absurd. Real ones will get that reference. Anyway, the point is, there's just no way that the Bucks are the only team that tampered or that they're the worst team. It just doesn't make sense. Just let the shit go. Or really, truly prevent it. And I don't know exactly how you would do that. I'd be a little nutty. And maybe that's the point. You know, you can't say anything on public airwaves, but just... Just because Woj leaks something, how do the Bucks get in trouble from that? Maybe now, maybe they found some whatever, but so reporters can just destroy deals because teams are tampering. But when Kemba Walker has a negotiation that comes out with the Celtics, the second free agency opens, like it just the big market teams seem to be able to get away with a lot of stuff. And sure, the Lakers have been hit for tampering at times. But the penalties are nothing. This Bucks penalty is really nothing. Why are we doing it? Like, it's just perform. I just don't understand any. It's all performative nonsense. Everyone tampers. We know it. So what are we doing? Like, the penalties aren't harsh. You have to either, like, penalize a team, like, three first-round picks, like the Joe Smith thing. Or there's just no reason to do any of this. It's just dumb. It's just, it's all dumb. And it's just rules for rules sake. Because you're not even enforcing anything that matters. You know, oh, flopping is a $5,000 fund. You really think they care about that? Like, it just truly, this is where the NBA acts like the NFL is that a lot of their little official rules, you can't do the big balls dance because it's offensive. You know, you can't do a throat slash gesture. They're rules. They're little, it's dumb. And I just wish they would grow up and stop doing this stuff. In any case, I realized I hadn't picked Western Conference and Eastern Conference champs and title champs just for, you know, and here it is. I'm not going to go against LeBron anymore. I want the Suns to upset the Lakers, but it's an upset for a reason. So I'm picking the Lakers to win the West. Um, as far as the Eastern Conference goes, there's a lot of different things that could occur. So it's really tough to say. Um, but everyone is down on Miami. And I think that, you know, I just think Jimmy and Bam are really good. And I think Eric Spolstra is the best coach around. And I don't see any reason they're going to get knocked out of that position right now. So I'm going to take Miami again and the Lakers to win it all. I'm just going to take a repeat. Now, the Sixers might pull it off. The Bucks might pull it off. The Celtics might pull it off. I could see any of those things. I really could. But until I see it, I'm just 
I'm hesitant to pick the Bucks again. And it's not because of Giannis, and it's not because of Drew Holiday, but it's because of Mike Budenholzer. And I don't know if he has it as a playoff coach. I like the moves that the 76ers have made. I really have. But there's so much uncertainty with what's going on with them. Who the hell knows? Are they going to be, is it going to be Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid? Is it going to be Harden? It's really tough to say what that scenario is. And with the Celtics, you know, they could be a lot better. But the way that they got worked by Miami in the playoffs, um, every time, a lot of it was timely shooting, sure. And, you know, maybe that can't necessarily be repeated, but I really think that Eric Spolstra put on a coaching clinic and he just basically outcoached Brad Stevens. And I almost think Brad Stevens was kind of outcoached in the Raptors series too, because the Celtics were more talented and the Raptors were in those games. So I don't know. My, my confidence in Brad Stevens as a coach took a little hit. Um, and so I love Eric Spolstra and I'm just going to go. My pick is a rematch of Miami and the Lakers. We'll see what goes. We'll see what happens. But I believe the Lakers will win it all. I do. I I I've I just want to be clear. I do think the Suns are dark horse, dark horse title contenders. I don't care how people feel about that. I believe it. So let's switch to football now. Um, picking tonight, we got Monday Night Football. It's a 14-point spread. The Steelers are basically in a get-right game because things have not been so well for them lately. The Bengals are garbage. You know, the Steelers are going to want to do everything they can to destroy the Bengals tonight. They want to get on the right track. They want to treat this like one of those really early season college games where Alabama is playing like Southwest Louisiana, Florida Tech State. You know, the Steelers are going to crush them. So take, take the Steelers. It went from 13 to 14 overnight or over the weekend. Um, so. You know, if you can get 13 or 13 and a half, that's probably better than 14 just because, you know, the two touchdown spread, you never know, a garbage time touchdown. But I really think the Steelers, I really could see this game being, even with Ben Roethlisberger hobbled a little bit, it just the Bengals don't have a team. And now that Joe Burrow's gone, it just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking anything from the Bengals. So just take the Steelers. They need a get right game. They're going to have it. The Panthers fire Marty Herney. Um, I find this interesting because I think the Panthers, I kind of like the Panthers coming into the season. I like what they had done. Um, you know, I anticipated them to be, you know, about as good as they are, but I picked them to win over five and a half games, I think. So I picked them to win like six games. So I thought, um, you know, they would be decent. Um, I think, truthfully, this is like, Matt Rule is now ascending and getting even more power within the Panthers. You know, the Panthers owner, David Tepper, he went out of his way to get Matt Rule. He paid too much money in the eyes of many people. Um, you know, people from other teams didn't like it. You know, it's, it's whatever. But he had been proven to build programs in college. David Tepper said, that's the guy I want in the pros. They haven't won yet, but you can kind of see a scenario where, you know, Marty Herney was doing a patch job to fix what had been broken before, and now he's gone, and here we go. Now, in any case, however you look at this, I think this is just about giving Matt Rule more power. Like, truly, I think that's what this is. I think that Matt Rule is going to be essentially now operating as GM and coach. You got... uh 
John Gruden doing that in um in Las Vegas. Now I, I know that they have I know they have a GM, but he's the coach and he makes the final decisions. Same thing with Belichick. And I think we're really gonna have that with with Matt Rule. And it's interesting, um, you know, for a college coach to sort of ascend that quickly and gain that power. Last time we saw that was Chip Kelly. Didn't really work with the Eagles. Um, but you know, I think I like what Matt Rule has done this year. Um you look at the Panthers offense and they haven't had Christian McCaffrey for a lot of the year and they're still playing decently. Like they're not a team that typically gets too smashed. I picked them to cover the spread this last week. I said it would be close and that they would kind of cover late. That's exactly what happened. They're not bad. They just need a few more tweaks here and there. And it seems like David Tepper wants to let Matt rule, make all those decisions. So it's just going to be interesting because it is now his show. I think I really think whoever gets hired is a guy who comes in below Matt rule and you know, he's going to be making those decisions. I don't obviously have sources. I'm not reporting anything. Obviously I'm not that guy. I'm just saying this is, you know, that's what that looks like to me. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what we see from the Panthers going forward, because it's truly going to be on the shoulders of one guy. On the Bucks game this weekend, um, started out rough, um, a little stressful, but, I really, truly enjoyed seeing the Bucks come back from adversity. Now, I know it was against the Falcons, and I know that they're prone to collapsing, and it's Tom Brady and all these, and we all got jokes. Um, but the Falcons were 4-4 four and four since Raheem Morris took over as coach. Dan Quinn was just, I don't know, he fell apart after that Super Bowl. But the Falcons have been playing 500 football. They've been playing much more competently, and I'm not saying they're great. Here's the thing. Some days, a good team is getting the better of you. And it doesn't really matter what is, and I think, uh, the announcer, I think it was Moose Johnson said this during the game, how, what matters is how you respond. So it doesn't really matter. Like the first half truly doesn't matter. Like the Falcons don't get a win or half a win for do- dominating the first half. It means nothing. So for the Bucks to now know, hey, We've literally proven at this point, you know, they were behind 24-7 to the Chargers as well. And for all the horrendous defensive play in the first half of the Chiefs game, you know, they were close at the end. And I think that there is, there's positivity here. I can see it. They're turning, I think they're turning the corner again. And I think that some of the early 7-2 and two was maybe a little bit of schedule. But I also think, you know, um, you know, they're, they're playing an easier part of the schedule too. They struggle through the tough part of their schedule. So there definitely is some things that need to be tweaked, but you're not bad when you're nine and five. You're not a bad team. So especially given some of the injuries that they dealt with, they've had to figure some of that stuff out. It does happen, but I think the Bucks, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it again. What made me feel good about them is really starting to show up again. The defense struggled a little bit this week, but you know, they'll get it there. One thing I think is interesting is Antonio Brown. Um, I don't know how to feel about overall. I, it's a very complicated legal situation. There's a lot to it. I don't, I don't really want to go into that. It's, if it's true, it's terrible. I just want to, okay, I'm just going to say this. If it's true, it's terrible, but Peyton Manning has gotten a pass on his entire life on a sexual assault that he committed. Antonio Brown has not been found guilty yet, but as a black man, he's being 
basically, well, someone accused you, so you're guilty. Peyton Manning actually was guilty, and that didn't stop him from having anything in his life. And by the way, when people keep mentioning him running for senator, and the reason he says no, he's not going to do it, that's the reason. Because he committed sexual assault, and he doesn't want it to come up again. And if you don't believe me, go look this up. He teabagged a female trainer in front of a locker room, and then smeared her to make sure she couldn't get other jobs, then spoke about it in his book and publicly multiple times, and had to pay her many times. It could have been his father who wrote about her in a book. The point is Peyton Manning has had to pay this woman multiple times for a sexual assault that he committed, that we know he committed, that he admitted that he committed. And Antonio Brown is presumed guilty. And I'm not saying that he's necessarily innocent, but I don't understand how Peyton Manning walks, but I'm supposed to believe that Antonio Brown is the evil one. And in any case, for all the garbage that he did last year, there was clearly something wrong with this man. You can see it. However, his post-game interview yesterday was a different guy. He's changing a little bit. Something is going on there. He's growing up a little bit. And you can see how much he loves Tom Brady. And I do think that Tom helped this guy get his head on straight a little bit and maybe helped him grow up. And I wish that that had happened earlier, obviously. But I see a different guy there. There's something to it. He's not the same. He's just different. And I, I think that matters a little bit in terms of why, you know, the Buccaneers have taken a chance on him and things like that. And so I think that's an interesting situation. Um, and I do hope that the growth I see in these interviews is real and not playing for the cameras, you know, because it, it would be good regardless of what this scenario is legally or whatever. It is good to see people take a step to improve their lives. I don't love the whole, you know, Tony Robbins thing. That's not, you know, I don't like any of that. But whatever it takes to get you to be a truly better person, I do think that's important. So I hope that's real and I hope that's what it is. The Jets finally win. They covered the spread for me. But uh, they basically ruined their chances of getting Trevor Lawrence. Now the Jags are in pole position to get Trevor Lawrence. So the, the Jets can't even fucking tank right. And for Sam Darnold, it's like, yes, save my job. <laughs> I mean, the Jets were literally in pole position to draft the next guy, the guy that people think is the next Tom Brady. The Jets had it right there. And I know that the players don't want to lose. I know that, uh, you know, Jason Kelsey went on that whole rant about players don't want to lose. I understand all that stuff. So bench those players. <laughs> like, you're so close. Uh, <laughs> and now they're stuck with Sam Darnold, essentially. One of my dark horse picks had been that the Jets were going to get Lawrence and that the Patriots would take Darnold from the Jets and fix him and just ruin their lives. And now they're going to be stuck with broken Darnold. I just, the Jets can't even tank right, man. It's funny. Spread picks this week and over-under picks. So, again, I made 16 picks. Um, I didn't pick the Thursday game against the spread. I would have picked the, the, whatever. I made 16 picks on yesterday's games. There's also the Steelers. Again, I picked Steelers minus 13 on uh, Friday. I'm still taking Steelers minus 14 today. So, you know, whatever. But of the picks I made, 16 games yesterday. 
Eight wins, five losses, three pushes. So not a bad day. Uh, I got both my over-under picks right. Called the uh, under in the Panthers-Packers game. That was under. And I called the over uh, in the Lions-Titans game. And the freaking Titans almost got to the over by themselves. Jeez, it was over 51 and a half. They scored like almost 70 points or something. It was crazy. 77. It was a crazy game. They scored like 49 themselves. So um, those were good. Um, the uh, the eight wins, uh, Bills minus five and a half for the Broncos. Panthers plus nine and Packers. Um, let's see. I also had Dolphins minus one and a half at the Patriots. Sorry, guys. Um, Ravens minus 13 versus Jacksonville. Jets plus 17 and a half at the Rams. There you go. <laughs> um, and uh, I also had the Browns minus six and a half versus the Giants. And the losses were the uh, Vikings minus three versus the Bears. Seahawks minus six and a half at Washington. Bucks minus six in Atlanta. Boo-hoo, I'm very sad about that one. Lions plus 11 at Titans. Um, and uh, I say the 49ers minus three at Dallas as well. In any case, three pushes, Cardinals game, Chiefs at Saints, and also the Texans plus seven at Colts. That's what happens when you have those games that are seven and three. You know, you almost always, almost always push those. Just, well, not always. You just, it feels like you always push those because they're exactly seven and exactly three. That's why you always want to get the three and a half, two and a half, or, you know, seven and a half, six and a half, you know, depending on what way you're leaning. The Eagles, they lost, but they put up 26 against the Cardinals. Cardinals don't have the most phenomenal defense, but they've been much better. And it's very clear to me that Jalen Hurts has been. Better than Carson Wentz. Um, and, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I, I, I'm not a big believer or traditionally have not been a big believer in, of college guys in pro sports, whether it's football or basketball. I think recruiting and dealing with kids is different from free agency trades and dealing with grown men. I think that I just think those are different things, and I think they require different skill sets. Now we're going to see if Matt Rule can do it, if he can make the transition. Um, one guy I would believe in making that transition is is Lincoln Riley. And here's the thing: you look at Jalen Hurts. His primary problem at Alabama was that he wouldn't throw the ball downfield, wouldn't, couldn't, whatever it was. And that was, that was the primary deficiency in his game. When he was benched at halftime of the national title game, when they were down, I think 20 to nothing to Georgia and Tua comes in and just starts throwing the ball downfield and Alabama's offense clicks. And really that day, Alabama's offense, I mean, you know, it's, it, I mean, it changed forever at that point because Tua became Tua and now, you know, they're, they're, they're blowing it out and they were playing that way before him. But I mean, it was truly incredible how, you know, they had been playing one way with Jalen Hurts and then Tua comes in its second half and everything kind of changed for, um, you know, from that. It was very interesting. Um, but Jalen just wasn't moving the ball downfield at that time. And, you know, when he transferred to Oklahoma, that was kind of my question. You know, was he going to do that? Because you're looking at, um, you know, a guy who had, you know, following Baker Mayfield, following Kyler Murray, you know, Kyler was still, you know, Kyler has always been talked about for his speed, but he's a better passer than pe- people realize. And Jalen Hurts, 
you know, I had compared him to Cam Newton, and it's a fair comparison because he runs like a running back. He punishes guys. He hits the hole. He goes forward. But again, that deficiency was the one thing I worried about, and he really changed at Oklahoma. Not that he wasn't a running quarterback still, but he moved the ball downfield in a way that suggested confidence and true knowledge of the defenses in front of him. Now, of course, you know, in Oklahoma, you're playing in the Big 12. You're not playing some of the best defenses. I understand that. But it still takes a true quarterback to not always check down and not always look to run first. And he changed. And you could see that change in his year at Oklahoma. And I said it all the time. I thought they were going to be better than Clemson. I kind of tweeted that to troll people. I got a bunch of shit talked to me when they eventually lost to Kansas State. Whatever. I believed in Jalen Hurts. I've never believed in Carson Wentz. I, I just don't understand what people see in him. I don't see it. I've never seen it. I believe in Jalen Hurts. And I think that change is the right change for the Eagles. But look at what Lincoln Riley has done. Baker Mayfield has been, you know, not incredible in the pros, but still someone that he won a ton of games with and a guy that he helped develop into an NFL starter. We see Kyler Murray, you know, go from playing baseball. He was, he was playing to play baseball. He comes in, has, you know, one of the great college seasons of all time, and now he's, you know, he's playing really well in the pros. I mean, there are things that Kyler could do better. His second year hasn't quite been what people hoped. There were people talking about him following the second year MVP thing with Lamar Jackson. I was one of them. I wasn't necessarily talking about it, but I was talking about the odds, per se. So you look at those things and you see the guys that he's been able to win with, and I'm not necessarily saying that everything has, you know, and this year's a weird year, so it's, you know, hard to, but looking at the guys who were, these three past guys who have been in the league, who have been in the NFL, and you look at the ways that he developed them, I just think he's one guy who I would believe in having success. And I thought that Mike McCarthy was going to be decent for the Cowboys. I'm basically been completely proven wrong about that. And when they eventually fire McCarthy and the Lincoln Riley rumors pop up again, um, I think that could happen and I would believe in it potentially working. Just maybe needs to be a little older than some of his players first. Um, and then the last couple of things. Number one, I'm not sure about the Chiefs this year. Here's the thing. Their offense is phenomenal. It's great as ever. Maybe the best they've ever had. Who knows? They're, you know, they're, they're, it's Mahomes. They're, they're incredible. I understand that. But their defense is not incredible. And you dive into some of these games. There's been a lot of close calls. And I just wonder, if you have one off day, if Mahomes doesn't have a great day, if the running game isn't working, if Andy Reid makes one or two boneheaded timing decisions like he does, they are primed for an upset. I'm not saying they're definitely going to lose, but I just don't, I don't feel like the Chiefs are going to repeat. I don't think they're going to win the Super Bowl this year. I just feel like something else is going to happen. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But there just seems to be, there's so many close games. And it, it does, hey, we win close games. We won. We handled business when we had to. I understand that. Tom Brady's won a million close games. I get that. But, I just, if you have these in the playoffs, you're just more and more likely, you just never know. It just, 
I just I just have a weird feeling that they're going to be one of these teams that you know I know a lot of people are saying it's the Steelers that are going to get upset and you know they're because their last couple games of blah, blah blah but I just the Chiefs defense is good but not great and you can score on them and if you can find a way to hang with their offense and maybe get one or two turnovers you can find a way and one team that I think that could be the team is the Bills and I was talking with my friend who I've mentioned, Keith. What up, Keith? Got to get you on the show. But we were talking about the Bills potentially being a team that could do that. And he said, well, I think still eight out of ten times the Chiefs win that game. And I said, absolutely. And I said, but I think in any normal discussion, you would say nine out of ten times. And so that's the one thing. I think the Bills have that extra like 10% chance. I think they could be the team that finds a way to break through because you know NFL playoffs are very rarely chalk you know it never really goes how you think it's gonna go there's always some shocking thing that happens last year the Patriots lost to the Titans at home right like that was you know an incredibly shocking thing so there's always scenarios but like last year we saw the Chiefs fall behind you know multiple times in the playoffs and they came back every time and won but what if that happens again and what if this time someone has a better scenario? I just I could see a team like the Bills who have a lot of talent. If 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 Josh Allen has that one game, you never know. And how great would it be? This was the culmination of the discussion, by the way. How great would it be? And then I saw other people talking about this on Twitter. So I know that this conversation is phenomenal because Keith and I were sitting here talking about this, and then when I saw other people saying it too, I was like, oh, it's cold. What if the Bills made it to the Super Bowl, right? The team that lost four Super Bowls in a row in the 90s. What if they finally made it back to the Super Bowl? And they've finally done it. They've escaped from Tom Brady. He's left. He's 20 years of wreaking havoc on their franchise. They hated him so much. He's finally left. He's gone. They've escaped it. They've replaced the Patriots as the best team. Who knows what's in the future of the Patriots. We've got a young quarterback. We've got a good coach. We're in the future. And then they make it to the Super Bowl. And then staring them in the eyes from across the field is Tom fucking Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. How fun would that be? Oh, that would be fun. And I know that a lot of you hate Tom Brady. And that's fine. Tell me it would not be fun for the Bills, who lost four Super Bowls in a row, and then were devastated by 20 years of Tom Brady whooping their ass. And then they finally get out from under his shadow, and they finally take the next step, and they defeat the Chiefs, and they're the upstart Bills, who upset the champions with the best quarterback in the league in everyone's mind, and Pat Mahomes. Tom Brady's still the best, but in everyone else's mind, it's Pat Mahomes. And they upset the Chiefs. And they're going to the Super Bowl and everything's perfect. And then there's the legend. The nightmare. The boogeyman. The person who's ruined millions of radio segments on Buffalo Radio over the years. (laughs) Tell me you wouldn't enjoy that shit. Because I would definitely enjoy that shit. And by the way, Tampa Bay would win that game. And that's the Blunt Doctor Show. Monday to Friday, 
seems like we're doing in the afternoon. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, like, rate, subscribe, please leave comments. Also, coming soon to Google Podcasts, whatever they get their shit together. Be back tomorrow with more talk. Peace.